0: KDKA, of the Westinghouse Electric and Manufacturing Company in East Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. We shall now broadcast the election returns.
1: That was the voice of an anchor reading the 1920 general election results of the Harding-Cox presidential race. That was the first broadcast from KDKA, then using the call letters 8ZZ in Pittsburgh. Although there's a bit of debate over this, most historians credit KDKA as the world's first commercial radio station. That early broadcast laid the foundation for everything you hear today, on the radio, online, on amps, and smart speakers, and it changed how the world would receive information and entertainment. This is Wavelength, Baltimore's public radio journey from WYPR, a limited series made possible by PNC Bank. Over six episodes, you'll learn the origin stories of WYPR, WTMD, WEAA, and WBJC hear how they covered major news events, and explore how they've expanded to serve audiences. Plus, we'll look at what's next for local public radio. But first, let's get familiar with some radio terminology and learn how broadcasting began in Baltimore. To do that, I'm going to turn it over to Johns Hopkins, Executive Director of Baltimore Heritage, a historic and architectural preservation nonprofit organization. The team at Baltimore Heritage has done a great deal of research into the origins of local radio. Here's Johns.
2: Most early radio stations operated on the AM band. The AM stands for Amplitude Modulation, and the wavelengths it uses are long and low. One neat thing is that the wavelengths actually bounce off a layer of our atmosphere and instead of heading out into outer space, bounce around down here near planet Earth. They're still moving forward but are kind of trapped here and thus can travel very far distances, say from Pittsburgh to Newark, New Jersey, as KDKA did. FM radio, on the other hand, has shorter wavelengths. This allows more information to be encoded in them, producing higher quality sound. But their shortness also allows them to escape through the atmosphere. And so instead of bouncing around, they have only one shot at getting out there to radio receivers before they head out to space. Thus, they can only be broadcast more
1: locally. That rings true. Public radio stations, which are mostly FM, share a lot of information and high-quality sound is one of the things that we're known for. So how did radio get started in Baltimore? Here's Johns again to tell us about the earlier days of radio in Charm City.
2: Baltimore's first radio station was WFBR, and it came out of the 5th Regiment Armory, the Army Reserve Headquarters. The call letters stand for World's First Broadcasting Regiment, and it sounds a little bit boastful, but apparently it was true. WFBR got started in the 1920s and by the 1930s had moved its studio to the Center Theater on North Avenue where today there's a great collaboration between the Maryland Institute College of Art and Johns Hopkins University. In the early 1970s, Andrew Zielinski, who went by the name Stashu Dombrowski on air, got offered the job to do an all-night, weekend show. It was a six-hour show that he did standing up, by the way, and he made his mark for his bits. Here's a clip from a 1975 interview with Dombrowski by a student from Towson University, then Towson State College. Yeah,
1: I
0: guess the biggest thing I did when the papers, in fact, made the AP wire shows, was... Uh...
2: Uh, Nixon resigned on a Thursday night, I think it was, or something. And on this Friday night, on going into a Saturday morning, I did the poll to see who the people of Baltimore would want to see as vice president.
0: Incidentally, Rockefeller won.
2: Dombrowski also shared some of his Polish background with listeners of WFBR, which he called an ethnic radio station.
0: Jim Morton calls me the Polish Prince. Uh, so sometimes I will get a jingle that got kind of, a kind of open. Music in the middle of it. There's 13 Baltimore. I go, with a Polish Friends or something. Yeah. I, you know, I'm working in that way. Mm-hmm. Some of the things
2: are hokey, but what the hell? Baltimore is a hokey city. And I made mean, that in a good sense. I really do. I love Baltimore. WFBR had a long run broadcasting all sorts of things like Orioles games all the way up until 1988 when it was sold. It went through a number of other call letters after that, and today we know it as WJZ, a sports radio network.
1: The 5th Regiment Armory did get a broadcasting license, but it was not considered a commercial license. Baltimore's first commercial radio license came from a gentleman named Kalman J. Zamoyski. Zamoyski worked in his father's electrical shop and stockpiled old Philco radio parts in the years before World War I. In 1922, Zamoyski became official. He was issued a commercial license with the call letters WKC. His first concert featured an eight-piece band called the Century Roof Dance Orchestra, and his broadcast was all the buzz in Baltimore. While we would have loved for you to hear a WKC broadcast, we couldn't locate one. But here's your next best option the voice of the late author and radio personality Gil Sandler, to recreate the initial broadcast. This is radio station WKC. WKC is now broadcasting. That sound over the airwaves was the sound of the very first commercial radio station to broadcast in Baltimore. The announcer was 22-year-old Kalman Zamoski Sr., father of Calvin Buddy Zamoski, Baltimore businessman and philanthropist. Kalman Zamoski Sr.'s broadcasting studio was in a corner of his bedroom where he lived at 2527 Madison Avenue. He would recall, That announcement was followed by recorded music, which I was able to get on the air by holding a telephone receiver up to a phonograph player. Quick break, and after we come back, we'll hear the role President Franklin D. Roosevelt played in the development of radio. We'll also hear about an unusual radio broadcast and a landmark one. Stay with us. Welcome back to Wavelength, Baltimore's public radio journey. I'm your host, Maria Broom. On this first episode of the podcast, we're exploring the early days of Baltimore radio. We've been talking about local commercial stations that pioneered broadcasting in Baltimore, and we'll come back to that in a minute. But I want to pause to recognize a significant piece of legislation that shaped what you hear on the air.
0: My friends, I want to talk
2: for a few minutes with the people of the United States about banking. To talk with the comparatively few who understand the mechanics of banking, but more particularly with the overwhelming majority of you who use banks for the making of
0: deposits and the drawing of checks. I want to tell you what has been done in the last few days and why it was done and what the next steps are going to be.
1: That was the voice of President Franklin D. Roosevelt delivering one of his fireside chats from the White House. From 1933 to 1944, Roosevelt's speeches to the American people were broadcast over the radio, and they covered topics from banking to drought conditions to unemployment to national security. Despite the name of the series, Roosevelt didn't speak to the public in front of a crackling fire. Instead, his backdrop was most often the patterned drapes behind his desk. Roosevelt understood the importance of radio— It was a tool for informing the American people. It was accessible, personal, direct, democratizing. I want to bring in someone who also believes in the power of radio and its role in educating the public, LaFontaine E. Oliver. If you've listened to WYPR and WEAA over the past decade, you'll be familiar with LaFontaine's name and his imprint on local public radio.
0: As you mentioned, I've led several local stations, from serving as the general manager of WEAA from 2007 to 2013, to serving as the current president and GM of WYPR and now WTMD. Uh, I'm a bit of a radio history buff, so I'm delighted to provide some context to this discussion on the roots of radio. I'll pick up the story about President Roosevelt. So, noticing the rapid growth of radio stations at the time, Roosevelt began advocating for a government agency that could centralize the regulatory and oversight duties of previously held agencies. So, with his urging, the Communications Act of 1934 was passed in January of that year, and it established the Federal Communications Commission, the FCC, which would oversee and regulate telephone, telegraph, and radio communications. The act has since been amended to include television and satellite. In the 1934 act, well, it required that broadcast licensees operate in, quote, the public interest, convenience, and necessity. The SEC ensured that uh, there was competition between communications providers, that charges were regulated, frequencies were assigned, and it oversaw mergers. Another reason why the act was so important it improved the consumer and listener experience from the cost of services to broadcast standards to accessibility. It professionalized radio from where we broadcast to what's called a legal ID. That's what you hear at the top of every hour.
1: This is 89.7 WTMD Towson, Baltimore, WTMD on HD1, the Baltimore channel on HD2 and online at WTMD.org. You're listening to WBJC and WBJC HD1 Baltimore, the classical radio voice of Baltimore City Community College.
2: WYPR, WYPR HD1 Baltimore, WYPF Frederick, WYPO Ocean City.
1: A pillar in your community. Morgan State University Public Radio, 88.9, WEAA, FM, and HD1 Baltimore.
0: To all the things that you don't see or hear, like spectrum allocation, penalties for obscene, indecent, or profane content, the Communications Act of 1934 created a rule book that we closely follow to stay in the business of serving you.
1: So far, we've heard about radio broadcasts originating from a bedroom and from the White House. But now, Johns Hopkins, Executive Director of Baltimore Heritage, is going to tell you about a broadcast from a train. Here's John's.
2: WCAO got its start in 1922, so pretty early, and it first broadcast from the Sanders and Stamen Piano Company building on North Charles Street. It moved around a little bit. It was at Brager's department store downtown, and finally at the Upton Mansion in Lafayette Square in West Baltimore. Interestingly, WCAO was one of the original 16 radio stations across the country to become part of the new Columbia Broadcasting System, which of course we know today as CBS. WCAO also holds another distinction in that it was the first radio station in the world to broadcast from a moving train. It apparently used a network of CBS transmitters installed along the railroad tracks along the way to do so. Another pioneer in radio was W.E.B.B. This station got its start in 1955 and was named after our own Chick Webb, the great swing and jazz musician. It featured some of the early and great jazz musicians, particularly black musicians, Its best-known DJ, Chuck Richards, got his start singing for Chick Webb's band and also sang with Ella Fitzgerald and a number of others. In 1969, soul singer James Brown purchased W.E.B.B. and held onto it for 10 years. In 1979, the station was bought by a woman named Dorothy E. Brunson, making Brunson the first black woman to own a radio station. She owned the station until 1990. Here's a commercial for W.E.B.B. from 1988.
1: Hi, I'm Dorothy Brunson, president and owner of W.E.B.B. Radio, Baltimore's 100% black-owned, black-program radio station, located at 1360 on your AM dial. In 1971, the world was in the midst of a change, and so was the sound of radio. On May 3rd, NPR made its inaugural broadcast covering May Day demonstrations in Washington against the Vietnam War. Reporter Jeff Kamen narrated the scene. Thousands of young people came to Washington willing to risk being arrested in order to end the war. They went into the streets this morning to stop the government from functioning by clogging many Washington roads during this morning's rush hour. For many demonstrators, the mobile street tactics of civil disobedience are an expected spring event. But before today, many other young people who came to Washington had not been willing to oppose the state with their bodies. For these young Americans, today was a major test of their commitment to the ethical code of the young and the angry. It was their freedom ride, their Selma march, their mayday. That mix of immersive sound, Descriptive writing and an authoritative yet casual delivery became the blueprint for NPR, which public radio stations as well as future podcasts would follow. Next episode, we'll take a closer look at the effect of NPR on broadcasting, and we'll look at how college public radio stations in Baltimore became the call letters you know today. You've been listening to Wavelength, Baltimore's public radio journey from WYPR. I'm Maria Broom. Production and support for this podcast and WYPR's 20th anniversary was brought to you in part by the PNC Bank. Wavelength is produced by Ann Kramer, Katie Marquette, Spencer Bryant, and Jamila Kremple. WYPR's president and general manager is LaFontaine E. Oliver. Andy Beanstock is the vice president and program director. Michelle Williams is the sales development manager. A special thanks to Johns Hopkins and Molly Ricks of Baltimore Heritage for the research they put into this episode. And thanks to the Maryland Center for History and Culture for sharing archival audio for this episode. You can learn more about the podcast and see photos of the stations mentioned in this episode at wyprorg slash Wavelength. You can also watch a five-minute history video from Baltimore Heritage about local radio. New episodes of Wavelength will be released on the last Wednesday of the month. Please subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.